Hi, this is Dr. Richard Benton. And this is Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider a small donation by pledging as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 a month. Your gift will help us improve production quality and will go a long way to contribute to the work of the Ephesus School. Please visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible to offer your support. Thank you. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the fifth episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, I had the opportunity to interview Richard about a paper he presented recently at the Antiochian Biblical Institute. The title of his paper was The Pain of Victory, The Identity of the Pierced One in Zechariah 1210. In our discussion, we first begin by examining a very interesting stance taken by Richard that the minor prophets are not to be read as individual texts, but as one unit, which he refers to as the Book of the Twelve. So we probe this question, and eventually it leads us to some interesting conclusions about the prophecy of Zechariah. And just as a note of accuracy, at one point I say that Zechariah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. To be precise, he's the most quoted of the minor prophets in the New Testament. So just to make that clarification. One of the things that jumps out right away when I look at your discussion of the minor prophets, you refer to the minor prophets as the book of the Twelve. Could you say something about that? Why do you group those texts together. The reason why I group those together, it's funny, because every Bible that we've had, going back to the oldest manuscripts, the minor prophets, so to speak, have all been on a single scroll. We call them the minor prophets because they're short. That's assuming that they're each an individual book. As far as we have it, there's only been one book, and it's included all the 12, at least the parts that we have. But we have never found a single scroll of Hosea or a single scroll of Zechariah or of Micah. We haven't had these before. Besides them actually coming as one scroll, are there examples of people referring to these as one unit? If you look in the book of Ben Siri, he actually refers to the 12. I, I think it's a significant point that... If one were to try to find Hosea in the ancient world, you would not find Hosea. You would find a scroll that included 12 chapters, including a section on Hosea. Right. I think that's significant because irrespective of one's opinion about whether these texts should be separated or how they may have come to be joined, the way that people had access to them, they would come in one unit. One thing also is easy for a modern audience to forget is that there's a huge difference between reading a text in a book and on a scroll. Because in a book, you can flip back. You can flip forward. You can read, in a book, you can read Hosea and then you can read Micah. But that's because you can move in three dimensions. When you're on a scroll, you can't go from Hosea to Micah without hitting Jonah along the way. It's like a teleprompter. Not only the text, but the scroll itself and the way that it actually functions controls you. It controls you, exactly. So you can't read Micah unless you started with Hosea and moved all the way through. So for everyone listening who likes to get the Cliff Notes copy or skip ahead to read the thesis statement in the next chapter and brush up on the conclusion, in the ancient world with the Bible, you would have to listen to everything God wanted to tell you before you could get to the end. (laughs) Exactly. There's no way of skipping. Anyone who lived in the ancient world of cassette tapes understands this. If you needed to get halfway through, that I remember having to move from records to cassette tapes and wait, I have to fast forward for 10 minutes before I can get to the thing that I want, that's what it was like using a scroll in the ancient world. The good news is the Bible was a bit like Netflix. You could get access to the whole story. (laughs) 
<laughs> the bad news is you couldn't skip episodes that were painful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so we've, we've got this, this thesis, this idea, which we share in common, this idea that not only one should read the Bible as literature, but read the Bible as a systematic whole, but in mm-hmm. a very specific way with the Book of the Twelve as, right. as a unit, as a section. So what insights... Did you gain? I mean, you talk about this in your paper. Share some of the insights you gained from reading the text this way. The insights I got started from when we were teaching the Book of the Twelve in Ephesus school. Sure. We started with Jonah, and they were like, well, what should we do next? We're like, let's do the next book. And then what do we do next? The next book. Until we made it to the end of Malachi. And we just ended up reading like over half of the Book of the Twelve. And so just having to do chapter after chapter after chapter, one right after the other, in the old-fashioned style of, you know, we didn't give ourselves the option of skipping ahead. I found that a pattern started to arise right. where you had Israel prosperous through grace. And then once the people had this grace and they were enriched, then they started to hoard what they had and would keep it for themselves and become greedy. And therefore they would abuse each other. And then what the Lord would do is the Lord would then deprive them. They realized that what they had was by grace because often what would happen is once they hoarded it, if someone tried to threaten it, they would say, oh, God's not helping us anymore. Or they say, oh, God's not paying attention anymore. So what God would do is he would then take it and then the people would be contrite and then they would, they would receive their grace and then the cycle would start over again. It's a parental paradigm where the parents lavish the children with gifts the children then become ungrateful maybe even resentful maybe Mm -hmm. bitter they complain about the parent right it's counterintuitive but when you retract the things they want when you hold back it reduces a different result right it seems that there's some kind of a connection there yeah it's true and the grace they have is wealth and security those tend to be the things that so he takes away their wealth and security well in an agrarian society what do you do to take away their wealth you take away their crops so therefore they start to starve often and then um take away the security what do you do in the ancient world you send their enemies against them in war Mm -hmm. and so that's what would happen is there'd be a famine there'd be war or some combination and so that's what they would be confronted with and that's what ended up in the Assyrian deportation and then the Babylonian deportation and then the wars that would happen in between. I mean, in Joel, for example, we didn't do this when we were teaching, but in Joel, it's a locust attack. But what's interesting was when you read it, the locust is like an army or is it an army that's like locusts? It's actually kind of hard to read when you're actually reading Joel, but it's the natural disaster and the war that are combined in the same metaphor. While you're talking, I'm thinking the Bible would be so useful for parents Right. Because when you tell your daughter, no, you can't have an iPhone. Yes. Just read this text. (laughs) I mean, at least you're not hitting her with locusts or killing her crops. (laughs) You're not starving. So I I apologize, Lord. I should not have compared the minor prophets to parenting. (laughs) Anyways. Yeah. So that's what I find interesting about, about, like, I kept seeing this mechanism over and over and over and over again. And it's not every single book that follows this, but this is definitely the overwhelming pattern. But then I found in Zechariah at one moment, there was a break in this where all of a sudden in chapter 11 in Zechariah, the leaders were rotten. The Lord wanted Zechariah to lead them. They bought him off and the Lord allowed them and blessed a horrible leader that he's going to be, you know, terrible leader and he's going to be cursed and all this. And then the Lord sends an army against them and allows Israel to be victorious. And I was shocked when I read this in chapter 12 of Zechariah. I'm like, wait a second. After the people are so lousy, why would the Lord give them this great victory and allow, I mean, just a total victory. 
and I was shocked. And that shock was the result of having read the rest of the Book of the Twelve and getting used to this pattern. If I had been reading Zechariah in isolation, I wouldn't have found this discrepancy in the pattern, and I wouldn't have been able to come to any kind of insight. In Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord talks about how he's going to grant the people victory. But he says, okay, you've suffered enough. You've suffered double for your sins. Okay, it's time for you. And then you're like, all right, well, at least they like earned it. But in Zechariah 12, they didn't earn anything. Like it's really, fr- it's, it was frustrating at first. So, so it was a, it was funny for me that this would be the case that all of a sudden he's giving them victory when they just demonstrated for the umpteenth time that yeah. they're lousy leaders. And the way they always describe the lousy leaders are they're like shepherds who eat the sheep instead of protect the sheep. That's the common image you find in the in the book of the 12. So it was just important to me to have read the book in order to prime my own mind so that I would see this exception in the text. And then by seeing the exception, it it brought my attention. And lo and behold, in verse 10 of chapter 12 is the famous line, they shall look upon him whom they pierced, which is the very famous line from the Gospel of John used about Jesus. And so I thought, oh, you know, this is obviously an interesting passage, an important passage, but it comes at such a weird time when everyone was, because if you try to compare them, it's like, oh yeah, everyone was rotten and God gave them victory and then they looked on the one who was pierced. And comparing it to John, like where was John getting this from? It was confusing. So I had to look deeper into the text of, okay, well, really, what's going on here in, in Zechariah? in chapter 10. And the funny thing is, in verse 9, was the end of the war. So the question of who's the one they're looking upon, the one they pierced, well, this is confusing because first the Lord says they shall look upon me, the one they pierced. And then that's weird because why would the Lord be the one who was pierced? And then they said, and they shall see him and they shall mourn for him like an only begotten son. And the reason it was interesting is because this is right after the war. Who's the one that got pierced right after the war? Well, obviously, all the victims of the war, hundreds of people were pierced. Same word in Hebrew for pierced and for stabbed. Hundreds of people were stabbed. They looked at the one that was stabbed. They looked at the one they defeated. The Lord, yeah, great news. They got victory, but, you know, a bunch of people had to die for Israel to get their victory. They weren't completely innocent. Even though there was a victory that the Lord gave them, they killed a bunch of people. And... Then I thought, well, okay, so they looked upon the one they pierced, the one that's, so why is this different? What happens differently here? Immediately before that, the Lord gives them, pours out on them a spirit of grace and supplication, chen v'tachnunim, which is very poetic in, in Hebrew, from the same root of chen, which is grace. So he pours grace on them, and then all of a sudden they look on the ones that they killed, and they mourn, and they weep, and it goes on for verses and verses and verses about how every single person wept by themselves. House of David, and all the women, and everyone there wept for themselves, and everyone in the house of Aaron. It keeps going on and on. Everyone wept. And you don't see this kind of mourning, especially after a victory. And that's why I said the pain of victory. That's why I titled my paper this. Why are they mourning so much when they won this war that the Lord gave them to win. The Lord gave them victory. And the reason why they weep is because they understand for once, finally, that because the Lord granted them grace, they can see their eyes are open to the pain that their sin causes. All the wars and all the victories and all the defeats, each one of the wars was filled with suffering people and Israel missed their chance every time to understand the pain they were causing and finally turn around because they never did finally turn around. You know, it's fascinating because 
as I hear you talk about the Book of the Twelve and this struggle that begins with punishment, retribution, mm-hmm. forgiveness, punishment, retribution, forgiveness, we see this lengthy period where there's no change and no outcome. Beside, never. I mean, the Lord is intervening. Mm-hmm. He's giving them instruction. They're rebelling against his instruction. He then tries to retract his bounty. They still don't change, and this goes on and on and on and on. But then suddenly, he just pours out his spirit. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, irrespective of the capabilities or the actions of Israel, right. suddenly they see it. To me, it's a very clearly what Paul is saying about the law. Right. I see a very clear parallel with Galatians, with Romans, where Paul is saying, look, no matter what you do, unless it's bestowed as gift by God, it's not going anywhere. No, that's, that's exactly what was proven, you know, that it was going nowhere. I mean, one of the reasons why people don't read the Book of the Twelve is because they always say two things. It's so boring and it's so violent. And what I realize is that that's exactly the case. I agree with everyone who says it's boring and it's violent. But humanity is boring and violent. Yeah, humanity I mean, is boring. That's the problem. The evening news is, is, is boring and violent. That's the issue. But what this does is it, um, there's a purpose behind being boring and violent because it sets you up to think in a particular way and see things in a particular way just so the Lord can smash that opinion, that vision, that view that you hold. And how does he smash it? Precisely what happens in Zechariah 12.10. He pours out a spirit of grace so that you see things in a different way than you saw before. And that's what changes everything. So what I find exciting about your thesis is that it undermines everyone who tries to argue that Paul is an innovator. You see what I'm saying? Paul's not making a new argument that somehow separates the church under the gospel from Israel under the Torah. Right. He is applying the Torah to the church. The difference being that now Israel includes the church. It's just a broader audience. But the futility of the law, the futility of the works of the law, is already described in the Book of the Twelve, according to you. Well, and here's the interesting thing, before I mention how it was confusing how this works with the passage in John. Well, if you do take my understanding of what's going on in Zechariah 12.10 about the one who's pierced, and you take that and you compare it to what's going on in John, the Lord offered victory to the world, to the Romans, and allowed them to defeat their enemy, Jesus. And a few of them wept that this is what their actions led to. You think of the centurion. This is what is happening with the centurion. The correct reaction to seeing Jesus on the cross is not, thank God, this was done for us. It's mourning that this was done for us. Shame. You should feel shame. You should feel ashamed. Look at the one that you stabbed. Look at the one who had to die for you to finally wake up and smell the coffee. This is a shame on you that you have to feel that pain and cause that pain to someone who's completely innocent so that you can finally, perhaps with the grace of God on top, see that it was you who did it and that it's your fault and that's the way you can turn around. That means also, and this is key, that the Paulian school, that the gospel writer, is identifying Jesus with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the terrorists, the Mm -hmm. communists. In other words, the enemies of the empire. Right. The enemies of the kingdom. Well, and... Which is not a shocking point. It's uh, not shocking at all because... But it's a critical point that people always skirt around and overlook. They always skirt around and they overlook it. And if you read Zechariah, 
I just said a moment ago that there's some confusion because the Lord said they looked upon me, the one they pierced, and they mourned for him like an only begotten son. It's confusing there. But I believe in looking at the data that there isn't... Some people say that there may have been a mistake here, that there's something could have been copied wrong. I don't believe that it was copied wrong. I believe this is the correct reading. So what that means is that already in Zechariah 12, the Lord is identifying with the enemies, the ones who were pierced. So it's already taking this paradigm and moving it into the New Testament. And Zechariah, I believe, is the most quoted of the prophets in the New Testament, because that's also where you find the 30 pieces of silver that were paid. The 30 pieces of silver that were paid, those were paid to Zechariah so that they could get rid of him, so they could have their own leader in place and get rid of Zechariah. And the Lord says to Zechariah, just take those 30 pieces of silver and put them in the temple. Don't worry about it. See, I think that the frequency with which the Pauline school uses Zechariah lends credibility to your thesis because it implies, and we would have to examine this suggestion to really see how it bears Mm -hmm. out, but it implies that they understood Zechariah to be at the apex of the thesis of the Book of the Twelve. You know, that's the coming together of all all these ideas in this point where the grace is poured Mm -hmm. forth. Listening to you talk, I can't help but have this evil grin on my face thinking about how ruthless biblical karma is. It's such a ruthless, systematically ruthless tradition where you're not only pushed to look at your enemy or to love your enemy, but God actually takes flesh as your enemy while your enemy is behaving destructive, not not just while after you've pierced your enemy, but even while your enemy is wreaking havoc on you. The people are never so sad in the Old Testament as they are in Zechariah 12. Even the book of Lamentations the destruction of Jerusalem. There are people dying in the streets. It's not nearly as sad as verse after verse about, it's just a catalog of who all is weeping by themselves. That's Levad. It keeps repeating this word over and over again that they were by themselves. Each one individually. You never have a place where everybody weeps except here. So even when the Lord grants you victory, he makes sure not only do you not enjoy it, but it's the saddest moment of your entire life. So it even so it it has the feel as literature. Right. As story. It has the feel of a character who climbs his or her way to the top, stepping over all of their friends, stepping over their colleagues, lying, stealing, doing all of the things that people do because of their ambition, Right. where they win at the end, but they have this moment of grace where they ask, what did I win? What did my ambitions achieve for me? I think you're right. I think that the Book of Twelve only makes sense when you read it that way, because then it becomes a story and not just a collection of fragments. Right. And I'm looking more, I'm doing more of a study into that to look to see what kind of interactions we see among the books. I'm trying to develop a more sophisticated look at the Book of the Twelve with Hosea as the introduction and Malachi as the conclusion, which is very interesting if you look at it because Hosea starts from the very beginning. In Hosea chapter 11, I believe, it talks about the creation of Israel like wild grapes in the wilderness that were plucked out of the wilderness and placed in a fertile place, which is going from the desert of Sinai to the promised land. It starts from the very beginning, talks about raising you up like you were a baby, teaching you how to walk, this kind of thing, and then goes all the way to Malachi, which is completely eschatological, and looking towards, you know, the end times. And so it's, in a way, this is another reason why I look at it as a book, is because it looks to me, at least from my initial study, there is the contour of a beginning and an end 
in this book of the Twelve. So this is one thing I'm going to be looking at further to see if I can further substantiate this. This is just fascinating, and I really appreciate the time we got to spend today to talk about your ideas. I think that what you're saying about the book of the Twelve is important for people who are serious about Scripture, because just like you can't understand a word outside the context of a sentence and a sentence outside the context of a paragraph, I don't think you can really get at the meaning of these texts without reading them as a whole. At least Mm -hmm. I'm convinced through our conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. All right. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.